0: conversation I've been waiting to have since the midterm elections have, well, results keep trickling in, but uh, we've got a clear picture of where things stand, is uh, trying to figure out how we got to this point. Jason Matthews, a friend of mine, a friend of the show, a political science instructor at Bismarck State College, Osher, Lifelong Learning, I, I, got I, I've got it, there's so you many titles. It. Okay, well, welcome back, man.
1: Welcome, and I'm in studio today.
0: Yeah, I know, it's the first time, I didn't realize you hadn't even met Eric Johnson, the producer of the show, until... Finally, today. met
1: the man, the myth. The yeah, legend. the one that keeps
0: it all put together here. The one that's going to keep you and I online, or at least try to here, as we figure out uh, what was going on. You know, I mean, we're a few weeks removed, mm-hmm. and uh, the news hasn't stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I think, went against the grain for everybody. I mean, you didn't see this midterm results happening the way it did, did you?
1: I had a sense at it. Where, <laughs> oh, did you? I did. Yeah. I can prove it too. Okay, i would say you can. I haven't re- no. well, Okay. I, have, oh. um, <laughs> I I had a sense because um, a couple couple of reasons why I had this sense that that um, it would turn out not exactly this way. I did believe the Democrats are going to keep the Senate. Okay. I thought they would pick up Pennsylvania. I did not believe the Republicans were going to win the House. I did think the Republicans were going to pick up though about twenty seats in the House. But what ended up happening, and the reason that I felt this way was because I looked at data, and what was what you were finding in that data was that Democratic registration was up. Uh, Democrats had overperformed in five special elections across the country, um, all of which happened after the Dobbs decision was handed down to the Supreme Court. Uh, also, the Republican um, MAGA-endorsed candidates, the election deniers, um, they were underperforming in some polls, and then the other fact, too, looking at polling was um, I take polling with a, not a grain of salt, but with a block of salt. <laughs> okay, we'll get more into that a little bit later. Well, one thing I was looking at yeah. was the quality of the polls. And, and you weren't seeing the big name polling firms that were polling in these states like they typically do. And then the data point that jumped out to me was you had less than 5% of the American electorate was being polled which is down to an historic low compared to 25% in 1992. And we've talked about that at length about cell phones and everything. Right. It's just getting harder and harder to identify who a likely voter is. So I felt looking at that data that that it wasn't going to shake out the way that the predictive journalistic um, uh, industry was thinking it was going to turn out.
0: Well, uh, there were... Was- there was some polling done even in Minnesota that uh, later in the game, and now it turns out that these were being, you know, injected into mm-hmm. the narrative out there that was basically just go out there and get the results that I want to to put out. I mean, I can't remember, Trafalgar or whatever. Yeah. I, I, Trafalgar. I, Trafalgar. That oh, was close. It's Monday afternoon. Give me a break here. Um, that uh, they had historically been, I, I mean, just so far off, yet that was one of the polls that had continued – to be shoved in everyone's face. Look how close it is. It's going to be a red wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounded good to hear if you were voting Republican, but it didn't happen. So you're getting fed that false confidence, and then the reality struck different. And one thing that was surprising to me is the reality was actually accepted by 90% of the people that are involved in the process this time compared to what we saw in 2020. So there's my little uh, yeah. you know the silver lining here of, okay, maybe – This being that there was the the conversation of this is such an important midterm election, democracy is on the line. Well, yeah, I mean, the results speak for themselves, but also the reaction to those on the losing side, I think, was a a warm welcome.
1: I think what this proves more than anything, I mean, this is a huge black eye to the media. Uh, And and this is something that, that we've seen over the last 20 years, this progression, where particularly with Twitter, and which is a whole what other story was, in what itself. Was once to yeah. That. A whole other story in <laughs> itself. But they're all getting the same sources of information. They're all going to real clear politics. They're all going to these these polling average aggregators and they're all feeding off of of the same information. Uh, and that that frames a narrative. So when you looked at election night, you saw how befuddled the Chuck Todds were. I was <laughs> you know, like, well, "What's going Tell on?" Tell me here? how
0: you really think about Chuck Todd. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> we'll leave that for our podcast sometime, um, because you know this this can't be because it's not fitting. It's not fitting the narrative. The other thing that that is key here is that when you look at midterm elections, generally, the average turnout in a midterm election nationally is about thirty five percent. If you get below 35 percent, that's good for the president's party. You get north of 35 percent, that's bad for the president's party. But what happened in 2018 was we just blew through the records. We had 50 percent voter turnout, 51 percent voter turnout in 2018, which was the highest voter turnout that we had had since 1914's midterm election, which, by the way, was the first year that you could popularly elect senators, and women weren't allowed to vote yet in those elections. I think we're sitting here when the dust settles at about 48 percent. Forty-nine percent voter turnout nationally, which is back to where we were in the 1960s and early 70s. And if you remember that time from history, we had a lot going on in the country at that there time.
0: was. I read about it, the history books. <laughs> Jason Matthews, my guest, he's a political science instructor out of Bismarck State College, Ulster Lifelong Learning Institute, as well. You can let us know what your thoughts are at three five two seven zero. That is provided by the Eye Consultants. Of North Dakota. So you have the Senate not changing. Uh, we're going to be waiting. What do we got, two weeks until Georgia yeah. is decided? Uh, knowing that Donald Trump's now in this race, mm-hmm. how do you see that Georgia falls? I, I mean, who's got the motivation to actually get out and vote there?
1: The story The story in Georgia yeah. is that, and the story in this midterm, there are a lot of different stories, but one thread of the overall story is is that red states got redder and blue states got bluer. You saw this here in North Dakota um, with with the Republicans actually increasing their leads. What's interesting in Georgia is that Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona are swing states. And there were mixed results in those elections Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, in Nevada they elected a Republican governor. The Democrat held on to that Senate seat, kept the Democrats in power in the Senate. What was interesting in Georgia is the Democrats got wiped out at the state level and Raphael Warnock held on. And but for poor voter turnout in the Atlantic metro areas, he would have won outright on election night. Um, So the story here is why did he pull off um, when all, you know, pulled off a squeaker, Mm -hmm. even though not enough to avoid a runoff, when all the other Democrats collapsed, collapsed in Georgia? It's because he had some crossover appeal. There were... Brian Kemp Republican voters, the governor, and there were those that were Warnock voters. The question now becomes, who comes out and votes? It's not definitive now. I mean, it's not determinative to control of the Senate. Mm-hmm. So so if you're an independent, if you're a Democrat that's inclined to Warnock, you can come out and vote. If you're a Republican and you're not crazy about Herschel Walker, uh, who, who does have some baggage, let's just put it mildly, <laughs> yeah, very mildly, um, very uh, you. you might just sit this one out. And now Trump today... Uh, is coming out and saying that he's upset that he's been told that he is not to go to Georgia to campaign, which tells me, watch me, yeah,
0: I'll be right there. Yeah. And uh, also earlier this morning, Barack Obama said that he's going to be heading down to Georgia. Yes. So yeah. that'll be another well, if, if he's going, I'm going. Yeah, type situation. Uh, and
1: don't don't think for a moment that Obama doesn't know that. I doesn't yeah, think that. It's it's a part of the that calculus, yeah. a little bit yeah.
0: is what I would anticipate as well. I don't even know where to begin in the House. Um, you have the Republicans taking control. Who's going to be leading the House as mm-hmm. Speaker? I, I mean, uh, you got McCarthy. He's not well liked, what seems like, by anybody. Uh, besides, you know, right now he's got the endorsement within the caucus, but not overwhelmingly. Yeah. And you, without narrow the the lead, you have, you're gonna have to have some crossover appeal there. I mean, what happens in the House? It, but Adam Schiff said it's going to be chaos. Now, Adam Schiff, of course, has his own, yeah. uh, you know, personality and own narrative as well. But that this will be a chaos, chaotic house. You see that happening? As yes.
1: Well? I, I well, the house by its very nature is usually chaotic. All right, mm-hmm. And that's just the way the house always has been, uh, traditionally throughout history. Unless if you have situations where you have super majorities or very large majorities, they have no room, no room for error. The Republican House Caucus is a divided caucus. Uh, And Kevin McCarthy is not Nancy Pelosi. He's not John Boehner. Uh, He's not Paul Ryan. What you have with—let's take a look at the last three House speakers. Boehner and Paul Ryan came into those positions from strength, positions of strength. In Boehner's case— He had written legislation. He had worked on Common Core with Ted Kennedy. In the case of Paul Ryan, he was a national figure, the chairman of the House Budget Committee, Ways and Means, vice presidential candidate. They came in. They had support across the broad sections of the party. Nancy Pelosi had great uh, appeal to Democrats because she was a master of the inside game. So when you come into that position as House Speaker, whether you're Boehner, Ryan, Pelosi, or even going back to Tip O'Neill and others, you come in there because the party, you have chits that you're cashing in, all right? McCarthy is going around basically scounging or you know, scourging for votes. He's, he's basically begging for votes and for support. And in, in doing so, you make compromises and you make promises, which weaken you when you ultimately do get the prize, and, and that, that, I think, is going to be the challenge for McCarthy. And McCarthy doesn't come into the position like a Boehner or, mm-hmm. or a Ryan, the last two Republican speakers, as an established figure with his own brand. He comes into the position as being entirely dependent on what Jim Jordan or Marjorie Taylor Greene or any of the Paul other— Paul Gozar or whatever. Well, I mean. and Jim Banks and others uh-huh. um, are, are wanting from him.
0: Well, and I think uh, that's already playing out right now when he's announcing that there's Democrats that aren't going to be on committees or going to be stripped of their duties. Uh, uh, now there have been some in this last Congress that were stripped. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene has plenty of time to go on any podcasts or, or news outlet she wants and talk because she's not doing any work.
1: And Pelosi, Pelosi did deny the seating of Jim Jordan and Jim Banks on the on the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, so true. now, now we're at tit for tat.
0: Yeah. If that's going to be the way it continues to go, it's going to be a long congressional session.
1: I I think that Adam Kingsinger, who is who's leaving Congress, uh, put his finger on it the other day when he says uh, he does not think that McCarthy is going to make it through two years as Speaker. What's the alternative?
0: I don't even want to know. If we know. You know. We don't we know. We don't
1: know. But I mean, I think I think that the House in many ways is a poison chalice. I think that uh, for for Republicans, I think the Republicans might look back and regret that they won the House. Going into 24, they might they might think that it had been better that they had lost. Um, and the Democrats, um, I think that is one lifeline the Democrats got was because the Democrats are banking on House Republicans overreaching.
0: Overreaching, then maybe you know all that talk about inflation, crime, the border. Instead, we're going to focus on Hunter Biden and laptop. Jason, you stick around. I got more questions for you. Jason Matthews, my guest. I'm Tyler Axis. You are listening to Afternoons Live. Monday Afternoons rolling on right here on KFGO i to continue our conversation with a friend of ours, Jason Matthews, political science instructor at Bismarck State College, also Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Frequent guest here on Afternoons Live. Welcome back. Uh, good to have you in studio here. Uh, we're talking about the, the House. I mean, Pelosi now uh, mm-hmm. stepping aside. You have a whole new face of uh, the Democratic Party in the House uh, taking over. Uh, all, all top three positions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm just curious how that's going to change dynamics as well. I mean, Pelosi with that, that legacy. You love her or hate her. People mm-hmm. respected her, uh, you know, because of her tenure. Like you said the inside game and some mm-hmm. of the things she was able to – continue to push forward i mean healthcare being one of them obamacare whatever oh. you want to call it i mean instrumental in it
1: i mean it was Do you take a look at and and you know again nancy pelosi is not the most popular public figure in this uh, part of the country but whether you like her or not you got to look at it from a historical standpoint she's the most powerful and influential congressional leader since lbj and she rivals henry clay in the whole scheme of things to being the most powerful speaker in history and it was because of that mastery of the inside game and you just look at the time she led in TARP, the economic crisis of two, 2000, 2008, the Affordable Care Act, the American Recovery Act, and then two impeachments, COVID relief, uh, January 6th, um, the infrastructure bill. Um, Democrats are going to miss her because the generation that's coming up doesn't have that, that kind of mastery, mastery of, of, I think, um, the skills that, that Pelosi had.
0: It is, you can tell me, okay, I'm just going to dig myself a hole here, but that generation coming up, it, it, it seems more on face value that it's either get it done my way or we're not doing anything. Yeah, Do you have that same I do. I have. I
1: have that sense. The one thing about Pelosi was for all of, you know, she's a San Francisco liberal. For all of that, she was still at her core a pragmatist, and there were a lot of things that didn't make it to the House floor because she didn't allow it. For example, the Green New Deal, she considered that the Green New Dream. Uh, it just it wasn't practical. It wasn't it w- wasn't realistic. She she had that ability to say no. And and she also had the ability to get promises in writing. Uh, I mean, she she was not a good public speaker. She's not an ex-tempor- a great extemporaneous speaker. She was a master. If you want to understand Pelosi, you got to understand the fact Her father was the mayor of Baltimore. She was the only daughter in a family of boys, and he was in charge of a political machine in Baltimore. Whether you like political machines or not, you look at history, political machines knew how to get things done, and they knew how to use the levers of power. Pelosi did that.
0: You have a whole ream of paper full of notes here. Uh, you got data points from the House. (laughs) Yeah enlighten
1: us well i always always ask my students to come to classroom right now all Uh right i always ask my students to come prepared here here it is key interesting points data points about the house (laughs) all right okay only 26 seats six percent of house seats flipped seven of those 18 republican pickups were automatic because of redistricting or gerrymandering a chunk of those came out of florida which has political ramifications if you're Ron DeSantis going into 2024 Four of those 18 seats that the Republicans picked up were in New York because New York Democrats, in response to the gerrymandering that they saw in Florida and elsewhere, overreacted, put through this really hyper-partisan map that was thrown out by the New York courts. And the governor of New York underperformed in rural areas, uh-huh. so that flipped it. Four of eight Democratic seats that the Democrats picked up were picked up because they had meddled in the Republican primaries in backing Trump endorsed MAGA candidates, and on that point, in 114 House districts, uh-huh. Trump endorsed congressional candidates underperformed by five points, but Republican House candidates without Trump's endorsement overperformed by 2.2 points. That's a seven-point difference.
0: Now, there's a whole story right there. There it is. I, I need to eat roll for a moment. I still hated uh, the process because, you know, in hindsight, hey, it worked. If you put your money on it and gamble, you know what? You came out a winner. When the Democrats were backing these far right extremists, the the election deniers in the Republican primary, said there's no guarantee that you guys are going to win in the general. I mean, you, we thought that in 2016, didn't we? Look how that all panned out. They, they shot. I mean, they
1: got it. Every single one of them. He said, "Yeah, the Republicans would not be in control of the House today, but for redistricting, but the Democrats could have faced." Uh, Bloodbath, yeah. if it were not for meddling in those in those primaries. And the one thing at the end is right now, under the current Congress, the House is 222 Democrats, uh, 213 Republicans. When the new House gavels in in January, it'll be 222 Republicans, 213 Democrats, the same margin. And I think this is indicative of, as some have pointed out. It wasn't a red wave. It wasn't even a red ripple or riptide. It was uh, essentially a frozen midterm. Uh, The country is polarized. The country is split pretty much down the middle. This reflected that.
0: Uh, I want to dive in a little bit on the Donald Trump thing you just mentioned. The the underperforming, if you get the endorsement, the overperforming, if you did not, he's running for re-election. Let's come back and talk about that. Sure. Jason Matthews, my guest. I'm Tyler Axis. and You got it locked in after live right here on KFGO. take my hand child come with me it's monday afternoon i hope your weekend was treating you well whatever you were up to across the upper midwest and probably weren't having that much of a good time if you're watching the vikings uh, hosting the cowboys yesterday jason matthews is my guest
1: were you watching
0: the game yesterday yes
1: yes you don't want to talk about it do you I, you know, I think I think that that was the performance uh, many were expecting. I think it's the, <laughs> the Vikings yeah. eventually. Na- Nationally, I think that's yeah. what, what people were saying.
0: Yeah. Like, look, this is the worst 8 and 2 team that we've ever seen. But I, I'll get into that well, later well,
1: let's on. Let's tie it to politics. Okay. That was the result that all of the prognosticators were expecting on election night for the Democrats. That's true. And what, what we all got was the Buffalo Bills Vikings game, which was <laughs> <Yeah>. a crazy <laughs> midterm. How's that? Well done. <laughs> Very well done. I'll allow
0: that. Um, so before we we got caught up uh, mm-hmm. on some news here, we, we were talking about those candidates that were endorsed by Donald Trump underperformed; mm-hmm. those that weren't overperformed. Mm-hmm. He's running for president again. Nobody's shocked by that, or nobody should be. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty well known. You can question timing of the announcement mm-hmm. uh, when you still got Georgia, when you've got oh, a special master now that was just appointed because special counsel. Council, pardon me. Mm-hmm special master was what he wanted with the old documents which was part of the whole storyline here. Mm-hmm. Uh so my question I mean is he still the front runner uh, given in inside the republican establishment mind because you're looking at those results and you got people trying to back away. The Fox News of the world, some of the the uh the papers that were all in and helping him get to where he was now they've all backed away saying well, look, we got to move on here. He's still out there with the you know a, Kind of the same situation that you saw in 2016. Uh, but if it's not Donald Trump, then who on the Republicans? Side?
1: Well, Trump has a lock on 35% of the Republican electorate. Right. I mean, they will march to the gates of hell with Donald Trump. 10% of Republicans won't support him under any circumstances. They either voted third party in 16 or held their nose for Hillary or they voted for Biden in 20. You got 55%, though, as as some have noted, that – are what could be classified as maybe Trumpers, which is entirely dependent on who the Democrats put up. Uh, I think that the way I look at it is if you're the former president of the United States and you want to run again for president, and you make the earliest announcement of any candidate in in presidential campaign history, one week after the midterms, Uh. you're not in a position of strength. You're doing that from a position of weakness because you're trying to clear the field. And that hasn't worked because the Republican establishment is out for blood with Trump. And you're seeing this with about a dozen candidates out there. They had an event in, in uh, Las Vegas, Republican Jewish Coalition, this weekend. They came out and they they went after Trump. Some of them, um, but Trump's inner circle sees this shaping up, like you said in 2016, where you know he could win with 35, 37 percent of the vote because they were winner-take-all primaries. I don't think that's going to be that dynamic coming up into this next election. I do think there are going to be quite a few Republicans running. But I think the field's gonna winnow down and it is going to come down to Trump versus candidate X. Put a name to that X. Well, a lot of people are talking about Ron DeSantis. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna come out and you can save the tape here. We do all of it. Everything's recorded. <laughs> I I think that he's um, an overvalued inflated stock, to be honest about it. I think that he plays well in Florida. I don't think he plays well nationally. I'm not convinced yet from what I'm seeing. I see him. I, I see echoes of or hear echoes of Rick Perry and Scott Walker or Fred Thompson. If you'll remember in 2008, this was going to be the guy the white knight that's going to come in and save the party. Uh, I don't think he doesn't have charisma. Uh, he's not a compelling speaker. He has one mode, and that is he's kind of belligerent. Uh, and I don't think that plays well. And, and, and if he's going to be a replica Versus the original, the original is going to win. You always go with Coca Cola, you never go with you know generic cola. And, and I, I think you're
0: going to do a Pepsi shot there, you know, <laughs>
1: no, uh, or RC Cola. I know there's some RC Cola fans out there. Um, I, you know,
0: Tab? Where are my Tab fans? Tab's yet?
1: done, Tab was discontinued. Um, let's have a shame. Let, let's have pour a one out <laughs> so for our Tab friends. I, I think, I think that that uh, DeSantis. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that he's the one that's going okay, to stop but, Trump. Okay, but
0: but if there is somebody, I haven't heard a name yet. Is it going to be a Nikki Haley? I, mean, I think I think you'd want to watch. I think there are three.
1: Okay, all right. That, uh, now I'll, we're getting to that now. Idea. Now we'll get into it. Um, potatoes here. I would watch. I'm not predicting, but I would just watch three. I'd watch Nikki Haley. I would watch Tim Scott from South Carolina, senator from South Carolina, African American, conservative, um, the antithesis of Trump in many ways. And a name I don't think enough people are paying attention to is New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu, Mm. who is making moves now. He passed on what would have been a slam dunk in the Senate race. Um, He comes from—that might be a name some of your listeners remember because his father was George H.W. Bush's chief of staff. His brother had served in the U.S. Senate in the early part of this century. Uh, He's a very well-regarded conservative— He's also kind of got this everyman appeal. He's personable, and he's not afraid to throw an elbow and be aggressive. And I think he might be kind of that perfect blend. That the question is, can he raise the money? But I think he's going to run, and I would I would be watching that. The the one thing that against DeSantis from a historical standpoint is one of the problems that DeSantis has is he he looks inevitable. And inevitable nominees don't win the nomination typically. Ask Jeb Bush. Ask Jeb Bush. Ask Hillary Clinton in two thousand eight ask ed muskie in 1972 or the ghost of ed muskie it doesn't it typically is the kiss of death we'll see
0: how much of it uh, depends on who's running on the democratic side joe biden just turned 80 this weekend uh you know i I question if the results from the midterm then just boost his stock for running uh, for re-election i still predict that he does not run i don't know when that announcement
1: comes i'm curious do you do you see him running again i think it all i think it all depends i think Biden regards himself as it's so important for him to run to stop Trump. I think that's how he sees it, all right? And he's said as much in, in, in 2020. I think it really depends on, on Trump's political standing. But um, the one thing that the Democrats have that they did not have in neither 2016 or in 2020 was they now have a bench because they were wiped out. I mean, they were slaughtered in the 2010 midterms and the 2014 midterms. Now they've got a stable of governors. And, and Americans like governors for president, okay? They have governors that they can go to, whether that's Gretchen Whitmer. That's a name that in, keeps
0: popping up in my mind.
1: J.B. Pritzker in Illinois. They've got Roy Cooper in, in North Carolina. You've got Phil Murphy in, in, New, in New Jersey. They're not going to light any fires. But what we're talking about, of course, Gavin Newsom wants to run, but I just don't see the Democrats nominating the governor of California or Americans, for that matter, electing any governor from California uh, who's a Democrat. But um, so they've got a stable, they've got a bench now that they didn't have, and one name I didn't mention.
0: I was going to throw it out there: uh, vice president Kamala she, Harris. Kamala Harris's yeah.
1: political position is the weakest of any vice president since Dan Quayle, and she's a gaffe machine. Yeah. Well, um, and you can send the, the hate text messages to Tyler. I,
0: <laughs> just, I mean, it's just there's going to be more people listening that agree with you okay, than yeah, disagree yeah, uh, just, on that
1: sentiment. She she just she doesn't have she does not have um um she doesn't have it at this point in time, and and um, she's not going to clear the field. Nobody's going to be scared off by Kamala Harris. You
0: know, in, in that historic moment of her becoming a vice president, uh, there was a lot of uh, assumptions that, well, okay, this is clear. She will be the next. Uh, I think uh, the, the, her tenure has done more harm to her political standing. Than, yeah. I mean, when you're given the keys to say, all right, uh, go address what's going on at the border – and to, to fumble yes. it
1: uh, as, as much as she has, I don't know how he come back from and it. And she fumbled in, in, in South Korea. Yeah. Um, you know, she, 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 she continues to step in it. And then she also continues to burn through staff. And, again, this is kind of inside baseball here. But um, there's nobody that's sitting there. If you're a J.B. Pritzker in Springfield or a Gretchen Whitmer in Lansing who did say that she's not going to run, she's going to serve out her full four years. We'll see. Um, but if you're sitting there, there's nothing that's going to stop you I'm um, looking at Kamala Harris's and saying, I better not run. I don't want to go up against the vice president.
0: Jason Matthews, my guest, political science instructor, Bismarck State College, Ulster Lifelong Learning Institute. Uh, one thing we didn't touch much on with Trump is the special counsel. Mm-hmm. I said something about a special master, but you know, there is a special uh, there is master. A master that he wanted to mm-hmm. say, hey, those are my documents out there. Yeah. Uh, but you've got the uh, you know somebody in. Uh, of course, now the name's escaping me. Is it uh, Jim? Jim Jack,
1: S- Jack Smith. Jack Smith. Okay. Just pulled that how, name how, yeah. out of the air. <laughs> Boy, how generic
0: of a name! This guy have a pulse? Either way, he uh, he's got a history about mm-hmm. him and what mm-hmm. he's done with Haig. and uh, what. I mean, does this impact at all this presidential race? Even if there were charges brought, how does that weigh in?
1: Well, again, you can save the tape because I think it is a foregone conclusion that Donald Trump will be indicted. I think that I think all the all of the signs are. Are, are pointing in that direction. I also think there's a very high likelihood that Hunter Biden is indicted, too. Fine, if he did something I mean, he wrong. Did, I, you know, that's the way I come down on it as well. If you did something wrong, then and I don't care who you are, what party you are, then you, you pay the price and, and you have your day in court. So we're we're very likely going to have, probably by the middle of next year, the former president and a candidate for the presidency being indicted— and then you're going to have the son of the sitting president also being indicted. All right. So, so that's a whole new dynamic right there. Uh, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. The one thing with the special counsel was Merrick Garland is very much by the book. But what I question here, and again, I'm not an attorney here, but what I question here is why didn't you just name a special counsel from the very beginning of this process?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and when that announcement came out Friday a- afternoon, I was, what, what are you doing here? You're just kicking the can down the road. Uh, the thing that stood out to me in his remarks were, look, now it's about a, a candidate for president.
1: But you knew that. I mean, that. Yeah, that, what's that? Yeah, and right. I, I would make yeah. the argument, and and many others have as well. Democrats and Republicans have argued that one of the reasons that Trump announced as quickly as he did was because he wants an insurance policy against indictment, where he can say that he's being politically persecuted or what have you. But he's been he's given every indication that he was going to run for reelection, from the mo or run again from the moment he left the White House. He never stopped campaigning, right. so when this all came down, I really question why you just didn't have a special counsel to begin with. But that's that's just my two cents.
0: Well, yeah, I think you made an actual pretty good point. Everybody knew he was wrong, yeah. So maybe I was giving Garrett, uh, Merrick Garland a benefit of the
1: doubt. Well, right? plus plus also, I mean, anytime you're dealing with a former president, it might just you know lend itself to just say, hey, let's have a special counsel. Yeah.
0: Jason Matthews, my guest, we'll come back, wrap up our conversation with him, and get your thoughts at three five two seven zero. Right after this, I'm Tyler Axis Stick around. In the little bit of time I got left with my friend Jason Matthews, I want to bring him back home here. We said it wasn't a red wave, it wasn't a red ripple, but it was a flood of red here in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. I mean, Democrats, there's four in the North Dakota Senate, down from 14, 10 years ago when I was there did think it could get much worse, but it has continued to progress that way. The House, I think they're at 11 uh, right now. Uh, you can't get much lower as far as the political standing if you're a Democrat in North Dakota right now.
1: No, Democrats legislatively are yeah. observers. They're not participants. Their involvement in the legislative session is entirely dependent on Republicans willing to incor- include them in on legislation because they don't even have enough, especially in the in the Senate, they do have enough to serve in all the committees. They probably they don't. They probably won't even have that office. That's the
0: minority office. Now, granted, for those that have not been out there, we don't have our individual offices, but we have a communal office where the leader typically was. You have a meeting room when you have to discuss bills. There's two of them for the majority, one for the minority. There's four in the minority. They're not going to have that. And I will not fault the Republicans for saying, look, we need the space Go over there in the corner. If there's a phone booth still available, if not, well, there's they, probably a coat closet. Yeah, somewhere those
1: in the little capital. those little uh, couches out in the hall, you know, you could yeah. fit four. Yeah, just, senators, yeah just line there them up. And, yeah. yeah,
0: it's, you know, but the the I think the biggest barrier for them is so far outside of their control because everything's become nationalized. I don't know how you turn it around. I mean, the Kennedy Center out in Bismarck, it last went out, shut the lights off, lock it up behind you, and then put the for sale sign on the front door.
1: There's a lot of that sentiment uh, that that's out there. I think, you know, interesting again a, a data point here uh, on, on inauguration day 2009 when Obama was sworn in as president, there were 11 Democratic U.S. senators from Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, and Arkansas. Today, there's one, John Tester, out of Montana. That tells you about this realignment that's taking place nationally with rural America and the like. So there's been that national narrative. But but there's also something else that's gone on that I think is unique to the North Dakota Democratic Party, and that is that if you talk to North Dakota Democrats, they're going to come right back and they're going to say 1992. That's when Nick Spaeth and Bill Highgard split in the primary, and that was the end of it for the Democrats. It's more complicated than that. I think 1992 tells half the story. I think the big story is Ed Schaefer, quite frankly. I think that Ed Schaefer— um, is the second most consequential governor in North Dakota in, in the modern era of the state politically since Bill Guy, because Ed Schaefer came on and B- Ed Schaefer understood the changing dynamics of the state. He, he talked about economic diversification. He, he appealed to the entrepreneurial, uh, growing entrepreneurial class in the state. And Democrats still talked about farmers and educators long after farmers and educators, majorities of those constituencies, stopped voting for Democrats.
0: It's the same situation today. Yeah, I mean, if farmers out there benefited from a farm bill that was a Democratic bill uh, at the, the get go here. Now farmers don't could hardly care less. It seems like for a Democrat. they might not necessarily hate some of what they get from Democratic mm-hmm. majorities, but they don't want to vote for a Democrat to be in the, the majority. It's yep. uh,
1: uh, when it's something like that. I, I don't know how you break through. No, and Democrats they never they never really expanded their base, and and let's be honest, their base. Started to die off. There was that factor. Um, it's a party that that to me strikes me as as very much rooted in the past. Um, you know, they still talk about the NPL. I mean, only only you know trivia buffs or anybody with some knowledge of North Korea really knows a lot about the NPL.
0: Nonpartisanly, for those that don't, in fact,
1: and, and, know and fair enough if you don't know, because I mean we're talking about ancient political history here in many respects. But but the one thing I would also say about the Democrats is. Um, the Democratic Party. If you talk to Democrats, they're micro, they've been micromanaged, and one of the things that happened to the Democrats were they had the congressional delegation up until 2010, mm-hmm. but everything, all those resources for many years, went to preserving that House seat because Earl Pomeroy kept having tougher and tougher reelection mm-hmm. battles, and and everything was poured into saving that seat, and they kept losing state races and state offices, and they started to to. Uh, lose in the legislative races and Republicans redistricted, and and that micromanagement continued into the convention process. And who are we going to pick here? We don't want to have a battle like we had in 1992. So candidates were handpicked, and uh, in some ways, they're they're um, they've been uh, masters of their own demise in some respects.
0: What's interesting and in telling to me is uh, as I was watching the results uh, and when I was talking building up to election night, I'll be watching carl Mund as an independent mm-hmm. candidate to see. The margin she uh, loses by versus what a Democrat on a statewide mm-hmm. ticket was. And it was noticeable. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you look at uh, Katrina Christensen, I think got about 27. Yeah. And Cara Mund the Independent, 40. yeah, got dang near close to 40.
1: And I actually, I'll admit, I was surprised by the Senate race because I actually thought Rick Becker would come in second.
0: Yeah, I did too. I, I, in fact, you said twice now, hey, you know, save the tape. It's saved out there somewhere yeah. where I've said that multiple yeah. times. Yeah. I thought Rick Becker would have a better showing. Yeah than what he did, yep. but not the case at all. Jason, I know that we got some uh, you know friends that are listening. I want to give a shout-out to Bar- Barb Bernhardt. Hi, Barb. Thanks for listening to Afternoons Live here with Jason Matthews. Myself, I'm Tyler Axis. What I missed before I let you go?
1: Oh, it, whatever we missed, I'm sure I'll, we'll cover the next time we come time, back. Yeah. So there you go. Get
0: out of the eastern side of the state more often. We'll this do. Is Jason Matthews, a political science instructor at Bismarck State College. Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Last hour of Afternoons Live, let's talk about the weekend that was in sports. I'm Tyler Axis. Don't go anywhere.